Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The folk expression, if God is willing and the creek don't rise, traces one lineage to a probably and sadly apocryphal letter from an early 19th century superintendent of Indian affairs. If true, it would have referred to a lingering fear regarding a potential Indian insurrection, not to an overflowing of the banks of a body of water, as is commonly assumed today. In this episode, we modify it for a third time by looking closely at the exemplary heroism of the extraordinary David Moniak in the Second Seminole War. We pray the esteem of this creek will rise among our podcast listeners. You see, David Moniak was a creek, one of mixed ancestry. He held the distinction as both the first Native American and the first Alabaman to secure an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy, from which he graduated with the class of 1822 at West Point, New York. Moniak led a band of 750 Creek warriors, serving alongside a U.S. Army contingent against the Seminole at Florida's Wahoo Swamp in present-day Sumter County. Major General Thomas Jessup declared Moniak as brave and gallant a man as ever drew a sword or faced an enemy. Moniak perished in the fighting. Generations of historians have attributed Moniac's death to being struck down by a barrage of galling fire from Seminole perched on the other side of a stream that Moniac had been attempting to cross. They drew this narrative from the later recollections of a military officer who was in the vicinity but not actually present at the site of this specific engagement. Something did not seem right with this long-accepted report, however, to retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Richard Allen. Why would a West Point-trained officer attempt crossing a stream of an unknown depth to reach a hostile shore in the middle of a firefight? Allen, an artillery and later ordnance officer who commanded troops in Vietnam, knows soldiering, and he knows jungle fighting. A graduate of the U.S. Army War College and the U.S. Army Command and Staff College, which he completed first in his class, Allen also knows researching. For the occasion of the 2019 bicentennial of Alabama's entry into the Union, Allen began exploring its favorite sons of the time. This is when he first encountered the curious circumstances surrounding David Moniak's death. Backed by previously overlooked official documents, as well as his own common sense about military matters and swamp terrain, Allen makes a most persuasive case that Moniac's actions in this battle were even more heroic than the diarists and historians ever suspected. Allen joins us today to share his revelatory findings. General Richard Allen, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Give us an overview. What happened at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp? Well, the Battle at Wahoo Swamp was one of the many inconclusive battles in the Second Seminole War. The American forces under General and Governor Call attacked the Seminoles under several chiefs and also being led by Osceola, the fierce warrior of the Seminoles. And as usual, there was a fierce battle. The Seminoles withdrew, and the Americans, whose logistics tail was not strong enough to support them, had to call it quits and pull back positions where they had supplies. So it was a ferocious battle, although there was a lot of shooting, not much killing. The Seminoles, again, nothing's away into the woods and the Americans went home. You said it was a lot of shooting, but not a lot of killing. Why do you think that was? 
in those days, the Americans used muskets, and they were not very effective weapons. They did very well if you were in open areas, but they were fighting in woods and swamps and trees and obstacles of all sorts. Seminoles actually had a better weapon than the Americans. They had Spanish rifles that were better, but the Americans stood with the old muskets that had been around for a long time. The end of day's battle on the American side, there were like 25 wounded and only nine killed, although the battle lasted for about four hours and an awful lot of shooting. and. Uh, as they call it, galling fire and that sort of thing. They're not really sure how many Seminoles were killed. They think it were tens, if not dozens. The Seminoles, in the end, withdrew, and the Americans, being low on supplies and ammunition, quits and went home. What was the run-up to the Battle of Wahoo Swamp? Why were the Americans and the Seminole fighting? Basically, the Seminoles were an amalgamation of a lot of different tribes. The principal of them were Creeks who had come down from Alabama and Georgia after the Creek Wars of 1813, 1814. When Andrew Jackson was elected president, he got the Removal Act of 1830 passed. All the Indians in the East were supposed to be moved out. Some of it was voluntary. There was money involved. They were going to pay them expenses. They were going to buy their land if they lived on the Indian lands, pay them an annuity to get them to move. And many of the Creeks came up on that and moved voluntarily, but a lot didn't. And some of the ones that didn't joined the Seminoles in Florida. Many of the Creeks after the war of uh, 1813 and 1814 had gone down to Florida and become part of the Seminole amalgamation. And so the American Indian agent, a guy by the name of Wiley Thompson, told them that you know, they either had to go voluntarily or was going to move them by force. When he told them that, Osceola was one of the sort of the hothead leaders that, you know, we're not we're going to resist, we're not going to go. He actually attacked and killed Wiley Thompson and four or five of his associates, uh, sort of in retaliation for Thompson having put him in jail, basically held him in prison for a couple of nights to discipline him. When Major Francis Dade was moving two companies of men, they were attacked by Osceola's men and they were killed almost to the man. There were three people that escaped bravely wounded and all died of the wounds shortly thereafter, but one was had seen enough to describe the battle when all of Day's men were killed. Those two incidents really triggered the U.S. Army involvement in the action. So what was the compliment here that started the Battle of Wahoo Swamp? Initially, uh, General Winfield Scott was in charge of the American forces in Florida. He served as the commanding general for just a few months and kind of got frustrated and asked to be relieved, and he was relieved. Richard Keith Call who Andrew Jackson had appointed the governor of Florida, sought and obtained the commission as a major general and was put in charge of the army in Florida also. And Call was going to remove the Seminole. That was his goal, to remove them or destroy them. And so he had a couple of indecisive battles for the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. On his first expedition, which had been some months before, they outran his supply train. They ran out of food, they ran out of ammunition. About 600 of the horses died of starvation. The men had to kill and eat the horses and mules to keep them starving until they could get back and get some provisions. But he reprovisioned and decided he was gonna go out again. And that's when he moved down towards the Wahoo Swamp. The Americans knew that there was a large Indian encampment in the Wahoo Swamp area where they had cattle and horses and their families together with about 200 what were called black Seminoles. They were slaves who had fled and were living with and among the Seminoles. And they were gonna destroy that uh, encampment and bring the war to a quick close. So the idea was to fight that encampment. He thought the Seminoles would then give in and move west. For people who care about Marine Corps heritage, the first Marine to die of injuries in combat since the War of 1812 was a Lieutenant Andrew Ross, who perished in the Battle of the Wahoo Swamp. However, for people who care about the U.S. Army and the Military Academy at West Point, there was the death of a Major David Moniak, 
Who was David Moniak and why was his death significant? David Moniak was a Creek Indian who had been the first minority graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1822. He was significant because he was the only Creek Indian who was given a commission during the uh, Second Seminole War to go down and fight the Seminoles. A number of firsts are attached to the name David Moniak. What are these firsts? At around 15 years old, some say 14-8, some say 15-8, he was the first Alabamian appointed, but his appointment to West Point actually preceded Alabama statehood by two years. Alabama didn't become a state until 1819. He was appointed in 1817. He was the first non-American citizen to be graduated. He never served a day in the U.S. Army, and yet he died a hero's death in combat in the service of the United States. And those are some of the first for David Moniak. What was it about his story that led you to want to write a research paper on him? 2019 was the 200th anniversary of statehood for Alabama. I got interested in trying to, as part of that celebration, bring some military figures out of the past and get them recognized for things that they had done. And one of the people I wanted to have recognized was William Weatherford. He was the leader of the Red Stick faction of the Creeks, which fought against Andrew Jackson in the War of 1813-1814. And when I started reading about Weatherford, I came across the name of David Moniak and his father, Sam Moniak, who were among the Creeks who sided with the Americans during that war. That's when I discovered David Moniak, and I started looking at him and seeing what an unusual situation he had. That's why I did the research on David Moniak's life and times. How did he find himself with an appointment to the Military Academy at West Point? Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it as short as I can. George Washington, when he became president, knew he had an Indian problem, and he wanted to solve it by assimilating the Indians and civilizing the Indians so they'd be taught and encouraged to adopt European farming customs and become herdsmen and cultivators rather than roving hunters. And he invited the Creek Nation to New York in 1790 to establish a treaty that would prevent the whites from moving into the Indian Territory and also try to encourage them to pick up the European model. The sort of self-appointed ruler of the Creek Nation was one Alexander McGilvery. He was one of the chiefs and there were many other chiefs who were with him and other leaders of the Creeks. And uh, Gilvery, one of the people that went with him was his nephew named Samuel Moniak. Now, Gilvery was a good negotiator, and he negotiated secret provisions of the treaty that paid him $100,000 for family land that already compensated, which was a lot of money in those days. They made him a brigadier general, so now he has the title of General McGilvery with an annual salary of $1,200. And the United States also obligated itself to educate and clothe not more than four Creek youths at any one time. A young Indian named David Tate was McGilvery's nephew. He was the first one appointed to that fairly subsidized education. And the last one, son of Sam Moniak, David Moniak, was the last person to get appointed under that provision of the secret treaty. He also had some things going for him in that his father had served with the Americans during the War of 1813-1814, and he had some political clout. His father, Sam Moniak, was a wealthy plantation owner. He operated a store and trading post, tavern really, uh, on the first federal road that came into Alabama. And uh, he was wealthy. He had a plantation. He had that store. He had a lot of cattle. He was very influential and wealthy Indian by 1809. What makes David Moniak's success at West Point especially noteworthy? You know, Sam Moniak was fluent in English, but he could not read or write English. And David, as he was uh, reared, uh, did not learn to read and write. He could barely read English, but he could barely read or write uh, by the time of his appointment. So he had been raised up in the Indian ways and not in the white man's way. But they got in the appointment, 
and they sent him north early, and he spent six months in Washington, D.C. with a tutor to enable him to pass the, what in those days was a very easy entrance exam. He was a child of the frontier, basically illiterate, got into West Point, and he managed to graduate. And this was a time, by the way, West Point was becoming much more professionalized. It had been pretty haphazardly run up until that time. It was established in 1802, the same year that David Moniak was born. But it had been pretty loosely run. At that time, a man by the name of Sylvester Thayer was appointed to be the superintendent. He modernized the curriculum, training, the education, and he set up merit system whereby the cadets were franked on their overall performance, you know, one through the last number in the class. Monette finished up as uh, 39th out of 40, but I think Custer was last in his class, so he did a bit better than Custer. Well, David Moniak came from an alien culture to West Point, and West Point was an alien culture to him and didn't have the reading and writing skills. He had to get a little bit of tutoring before he actually showed up. I would think it was amazing that he graduated at all. Well, it is amazing. He did well some things like fencing and conduct and things like that. He had a very tough time with French and engineering, as you can kind of imagine. But he was able to stay the course, got his degree, and got his commission. Interestingly, though, he never served a day on active duty. When he was graduated, he was appointed as a second lieutenant in the 6th Infantry, which had been deployed in the northwest frontier to uh, assimilate Indians up in that part of the world. But he was given leave to go home, and he never uh, reported for duty. A few months before he graduated, he got a letter from his uncle, David Tate, who informed him that his father had fallen under the influence of alcohol and become an alcoholic and was being cheated out of his land and property and needed to come home and take charge of his family's affairs. Well, David stuck around for graduation, but as soon as he graduated, he took leave, advanced leave, and went home, and he never went back. Uh, at that time, the Army was going under contraption like it does from time to time, and they were glad to release officers, even West Point graduates because they had more second lieutenants than they needed. He got released from the Army in December 1822. He never went to his first assignment. He came back to Alabama and settled his father's affairs, really his family's affairs, and then he married. Sometime in the 1820s, he married a woman by the name of Mary Powell. Mary Powell was a cousin to the Sindel warrior Oceana, who I'd already mentioned. David and Mary settled in what is now Baldwin County, Alabama, and he became a wealthy plantation owner and he raised thoroughbred racehorses and raised his family in Baldwin County, Alabama on land that had once been owned by General McGilvery. He had two uncles living close by. One was the David Tate I mentioned. David Tate was five years being educated in Virginia and was close to George Washington. He spent his last year in Scotland being educated. He was a highly educated, very smart man. His uncle, William Waterford, lived in that same area in Baldwin County. Are you able to tell whether he and his uncles were treated as Americans or treated as Greek? David himself would pass for European. He looked European. He didn't look like an Indian. I think David Tate might have been the same way. I think Weatherford had more of the Indian characteristics. And I've read different accounts of Weatherford. People were afraid of it. Uh, and so they, they kind of stepped out of his way when he came along. But he lived in peace in Baldwin County until he died of natural causes in 1826. But I think they were just pretty much accepted as Southern gentry. They were educated and they were wealthy. When the Second Creek War began, what did David Moniak do? When the Second Creek War began, David Moniak joined the state militia, and he was appointed, I think, as a lieutenant, second lieutenant in something called Joseph Booth's Company, which was a militia company. And both his father, who was now getting along in tooth, getting pretty old, and his older brother, Alexander, who had been a red stick, enlisted uh, in something called Walker's Regiment Mounted Creek Volunteers. 
And so all three of the men in Monac family served with the Americans in the Second Creek War. For those not tutored on the Second Creek War, they were Creeks fighting Creeks as well as Americans fighting Creeks. Well, the Creeks fought among themselves from the early 1800s on. There were some of the Creeks that wanted to be assimilated and adopt European ways, and some that didn't. And the ones that didn't were the ones that were called the Red Six, and they were resisting any assimilation into the American way of life. But others, like Simeon Moniak and his family and others, did, and they fought on the side of the Americans uh, at every opportunity. And yet, despite this loyal service, there was still the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and they were being told they had to move to the Oklahoma Territory. What was the deal that President Andrew Jackson offered the Creeks in 1836? When the Second Civil War flared up down in Florida, Jackson wanted more soldiers on the ground down there. He had quite a force already. He had Army, he had Navy, he had Marines, he had Tennessee Volunteers, he had local militia, but he wanted even more. He made an offer to the Creeks that lived in southeast Alabama and southwest Georgia that if you will sign up for a year and go down and fight your cousins and aunts and uncles in Florida, I will delay your removal for a year. I will let you have any booty that you capture, whether it be slaves or cattle or what have you, you can keep those. You'll be armed and outfitted and paid as regular soldiers, and we'll delay the removal for a while for you. And so they were able to raise a regiment of about 750 Creek warriors who were mounted and ready to go fight their kinfolks in Florida. Why do you think the Moniac family accepted it and served? Because it wasn't just David. I don't know. I can't find out what made him decide to do that. I think that Indians who owned property outside the Indian land were not removed. David Moniak's family was not removed after he was killed. They stayed on, and his son became the sheriff and served two terms as sheriff of Allen County later in the 1800s. So I don't know why David and his father and brother, it could be the father and brother, I think they might have still lived on Indian lands. I don't think they were in Baldwin County with David. And so maybe they were trying to delay their removal and their family's removal. But it might have delayed it for a year, but as soon as their year was up, they were all shipped out. Many of them died on the boat going from Tampa, Florida, up past Christian, Louisiana, and many more of them died there. David's father, Sam Moniak, died in past Christiana. He was buried there with his medal that he received from Washington at the Treaty of 1790 occasion. So who in the Moniak family accepted this offer to fight, and what positions did they hold? David accepted, he was appointed as a captain in the regiment, and his father, Sam, and his brother Alexander, who I said was a formal resident, they signed on as private. They were just rank and file privates with the regiment. And name of the unit that they served in and went down into Florida? It was called the Creek Mounted Volunteer Regiment. And it was commanded by? All the officers were regular Army officers except for Moniac. So he was the only Indian who was given a commission during that war to fight on the side of the U.S. Army. And the first commander was a man by the name of Captain John Lane. He was promoted to be the colonel of the regiment. John Lane was very well liked by Andrew Jackson because he was a little bit of a hothead himself. And he had rashed a congressman with his canes at some point in time in Washington, and Andrew Jackson liked that. But anyway, John Lane was made the uh, colonel commanding, and there was a Captain Harvey Brown, who was the lieutenant colonel in they had a couple of majors appointed, and they were all young officers. They're all like captains and lieutenants, but they made them brevet senior officers, which is like a temporary promotion. So John Lane became the brevet colonel of commanding, and Captain Harvey became the brevet lieutenant colonel, the second in command. Were these Alabamans? No, these were regular Army guys. I'm not sure where they were from, but these were regular Army officers. They were just down there on their duty. Colonel Lane moved the regiment from Alabama to Fort Brooke, which is now Tampa Bay, and they moved on to Fort Drain. He got there probably in um, sometime in October. Very shortly after he got there, he committed suicide. 
he somehow fell on his sword, fell on his saber, and stuck it through his right eye to his brain and was gone. And Colonel Brown took over as commander of the regiment. We've set up the scene. We have the unit that's come down with 750 Creeks. David Moniak is one of the officers. Lieutenant Colonel Brown is now the commander. And we get to the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. Now, you found reports on the battle to be somewhat hazy and possibly outright wrong when it came to description of the action that David Moniak saw. Who wrote about the battle? And what parts of the battle describing David Moniak do you believe were wrongly reported? A man by the name of John T. Sprague, S-P-R-A-G-U-E, wrote a book shortly after the war called The Origin, Progress, and Conclusion of the Florida War, uh, published in 1848. And he had actually served in the Army during that period of time. But read his account of the battle, and it was pretty impressive, especially when he talked about Moniac's death. But then I went to the source materials, which was a report by a Lieutenant Colonel B.K. Pierce, who was actually commander on the ground, and there were some differences between what Pierce said and the way Sprague interpreted it. And almost all historians since that time have relied on the way Sprague said things happened in summarizing the course of the battle and Moniac's death. And so I got to looking deeper and looking deeper and what these historians say based on what Sprague said. The battle started uh, fairly early in the morning. There were basically four columns that were put in the field. There was a Tennessee regiment on the right, artillery, regular army column in the center, two Indian columns on the left flanks of the battlefield. And they advanced until they made contact with the enemy. They then got in a line formation, which is about a mile long, and advanced. They did not fire their weapons until they really were on top of the Indians. Normally, in those types of battles, the line would advance, they would fire, they would advance again, fire, and then they would charge, the running charge. Well, they moved across the battlefield, and the Indians, as usual, slipped away. For a while, they didn't know where they were. They didn't know which way the Indians went, and they were trying to figure out which way they went when they heard battle erupt over on the left flank of the battlefield. Lieutenant Colonel Brown and his column, who were on the very left flank, had found a trail through the woods that enabled them to very quickly move forward. And so they were about a mile ahead of the rest of the American forces when they came upon a stream in the middle of the woods. The stream was where Moniac was killed. According to Sprague's account of it, and I'll just read what he said about it, it says, in passing over the main stream of the Wicklacoochee was reached, which is thought to be impassable. On the opposite bank, Indians were enforced not more than 10 yards distant. Covered as they were by logs and stumps, the repeated volleys had no effect on them. As the soldiers and friendly Indians approached, they opened a galling fire. Captain Moniac was killed while attempting to ascertain the depth of the water. Well, when you read that, it sounds like they reached the river, which is not correct. It was not the river. It was just a stream that fed into the river, more like a creek. You get the impression that the Americans had fired on them many volleys with no effect. And then as they approached the creek, they opened this galling fire. The Americans had not fired a shot. If you look at what Colonel Pierce said, he said that the Indians fired and Mondek was killed and then a sharp engagement commenced. So there's timing questions and some questions about exactly what happened when that maybe start looking original source materials to sort of find out what happened. So you had done a great deal of research and started a draft of your paper. And then Chris Kimball, who's podcasted with us several times, sent you some materials. What did he send you and how do they support the premise that you're pursuing? He sent me letters and correspondence and affidavits by an officer by the name of Major John Gardner. Major Gardner was in Pierce's command. He was in that column of regulars and artillery that were one of the columns going forward. After the battle, and Pierce wrote up his what we now call an after-action report, Gardner didn't think he was given sufficient credit for what he did during the battle. And so he wrote reclamers. He wrote a letter to General Call. He got people to sign affidavits of what happened. And in those materials, 
it's very clear that when the battle started at the stream, they were far ahead of the main body of the force, which is off to the right. When the main body heard the firing, they had been resting for you know a little while because the Indians had pulled out and they didn't know which way to go and they were kind of waiting to see what to do. They moved towards the sound of the battle. In the process, they got bogged down in the swamp. They got into mud and water up to the shoulders. The horses couldn't move through it, and they had to basically abandon their horses and slug through this swamp trying to get over to where the battle was taking place. But Gardner, with 30, 40 of his men, were on that left flight side. They hit the same trail that Colonel Powell and Moniak and Major Morris had gone down, and they were at the site. He was still mounted. He still had his horse. So they moved up this trail, as he says, double quit, and he reached the stream about 10 minutes after Major Moniak had been killed. And he says that Moniak was killed by the first shot fired, that the Indians were laying in wait. They were in ambush on the other side of the stream. And when Moniak and a couple of the Indians went forward into the stream, they opened fire on them, and Moniak was killed immediately. And then the Americans, of course, uh, took cover and started returning fire. And there were just relatively few Americans and many, many Indians at that point in time in the battle at the stream. And also in Gardner's materials and in people who wrote letters to him, they call the place where the trail came to the stream as a crossing. You know, it was a ford. It was used already as a crossing. You don't have a trail that goes through the woods and come to the stream and then stop. They could see that the trail started on the other side. It was a ford, and Mondack went into it to go across the, in my judgment, to see what was on the side before they took the main body across, and that's why so few of them were killed. One of the historians kind of gets carried away. He says, wading through mud and water for a mile and a half, the creek wing reached a running stream about 10 yards wide. That's not correct. And from the far bank, the symbols opened a destructive fire, indicating they had made another stand. Mondack now boldly sought a place to ford the narrow stream. A bullet dropped him in and his body sank in the opaque water. And another one says that he was hit by 67 bullets when they opened fire on him. It's just a lot of little discrepancies in the accounts of what happened. From what you're describing, it sounds like they were describing conditions on the right flank as if those were also conditions on the left flank, which was not the case. That's correct. Colonel Brown had found a trail through the woods on the left flank, and he and his men were able to get ahead of the rest of the main body about a mile while the battle was still going on over in the right side of the battlefield. And when they came to the stream, you know, they had some decisions to make. In the first place, they only had a few men with them. Some say he had 40, 50, some say he had 150, but he did not have many men. There were estimates, I think, during the battle that there were maybe 800 Seminoles. Colonel Brown was sure his men were badly outnumbered when they came to that stream. And so he could tell by the sound of the battle the battle was over on the right flank, that the Indians had done what they usually do, and that is, you know, pull off in the woods and live to fight another day. And he knew he was way ahead of the main body. So he comes to this stream, which is probably fordable, but you know, nobody's been in it yet, and he's got to make a decision about what to do. Here I'm at this obstacle. I know I, I want to pursue the enemy, but how should I go about it? He's faced with unfamiliar terrain and lack of intelligence. He doesn't know what's on the other side. That's correct. He knows there's woods on the other side. That's all he knows. He knows the enemy's over here, but he doesn't know where and what strength, what disposition, that sort of thing. In my judgment, when he reached this obstacle, he would have conferred with his other officers, Major Moniak and Major Morris and uh, other officers that were in, and said, you know, what do we do? Can we, do we stop here and send for help? Uh, do we just plunge across and keep on going? Or should we maybe send a uh, patrol out to see what's on the other side? And I think that logic and reason and appearance would tell you that you'd send a patrol out. They knew that the Indians were very good at setting off ambushes. The Dade command that had been wiped out of about a year before to the man was ambushed by the Seminoles. And the Seminoles were adept at it. And this was a perfect place for an ambush. It was an obstacle, and it was heavily wooded. They had good cover and concealment. 
is a perfect spot for an ambush. So my sense is that either Brown asked Monac to go or Monac on his own said, let me go see what's on the other side. And as soon as he stepped in the water, the ambush was sprung because they knew they'd be found out. He and a couple of other Indians were killed immediately. And Brown and his rescue folks were able to take cover and return fire and hold on till they were reinforced. Please reiterate again for our listeners what the historians were saying happened instead here. The historians kind of take the position that the battle had started, that they had this hot battle, galling fire, as they call it, and Montiac then advanced across the stream in the face of this tremendous volume of fire that was coming from the creeks who were hidden on the other side of the bank. Mahon, who wrote about the battle, says, Major Montiac now boldly sought a place to pour the narrow stream. Will it drop him and his body sank into the opaque water? Before that, he had said that from the fire bank symbols opened a destructive fire indicating they'd made another stand. Major Monick now boldly sought a place to ford the narrow stream. I just don't think that if the Indians had this withering fire coming from the other bank that Brown would have ordered Gregory or he would have gone. I mean, they would have done what Brown did after he was shot, and that is hunker down and wait for reinforcements. And that's what Gardner says. Gardner says that Monick was killed by that first bullet fire. There was not a battle going on when he ventured out and boldly went into the stream. He was killed on that first bullet fire at the crossing. From what you described, it sounds like it would have been foolhardy for him to go across, but it was fairly brave to go across before they started firing, and he wasn't sure what was across there. That's right. When you go into recon, you don't know what you're going to run into. Recon to find out what's out there. And uh, he found out the hard way because as soon as he entered the stream, they opened fire and he was cut down. And as they some say, there were 67 bullets in his body. The Creek Regiment wore a distinctive headband when they got to Florida. So they would be distinguished between uh, the unfriendlies and the friendlies. They wore a white turban. Indians in that part of the world did not wear feathers like the Plains Indians. They wore turbans, and so they had the friendly Indians all wear a white turban. Well, he was an easy target. It was easy to pick out when they saw this man crossing with a white turban, and they cut him down. Why do you think the historians reported it differently? I don't know. Bragg was there. He wasn't in that battle, but he was in Florida during the war. And I don't know why they just made the assumption he was attempting to ascertain the depth of the water. When it was obviously a ford, the trail came to one side of the creek, it picked up on the other side of the creek, it had to be a ford there. So I don't know why he made the assumption that he was just there to try to ascertain the depth of the water. He says, as the friendly soldiers and enemies approached, they opened a galling fire. Okay, so they're firing. And now Captain Moniak was killed attempting to ascertain the depth of the water. I just don't think that's the way it happened. I think he was trying to cross the stream when they opened fire and killed him. And then the rest of them took cover and waited for reinforcements. Reads like someone who didn't actually see the stream. My guess is that Sprague was writing in like 1840s, and he probably didn't have the materials that were available. I don't know where all this information came from, but he obviously did not have the materials that Major Gardner had generated trying to save his reputation. Gardner having seen the stream. Gardner had been there within 10 minutes of Moniac falling. He was at the site, and he took part in the battle. You know, he had 30, 40 men with him. The rest of the, his unit was bogged down in the swamp also. But the Marine you mentioned earlier, Andrew Ross, uh, was there with him. And Gardner says Ross was about two yards from him when he fell. And then he, Gardner ordered him to the rear to be taken care of. After Monek was killed and they, they all took cover behind trees and stumps like the Indians were, it took about an hour for the rest of the command to get across that swamp and get up there where they were. They finally got uh, enough soldiers up there and they got the artillery up there and they blasted away at the Indians until about 3.30. And at that time, the Indian fire had dwindled. It was obvious they were disengaging and getting ready to pull back in the woods again. And 
Colonel Pierce decided he was going to cross that stream and attack, and he had ordered Major Gardner to get ready to go. But other officers in the command said, wait a minute, it's getting late. We're about out of ammunition. We don't have any food. We don't need the attack at this late hour. It was 3.30 in the afternoon, but I guess in November in the woods, it starts getting dark about that time, and they didn't want to be caught out there in the night fighting the Indians. So Pierce decided not to press the attack, and General Kyle approved that, and they go back to their base camp, which is close to the day battlefield where they spent the night, and then the next day they headed back to Fort Frayne. What the Sprague makes, had they gone on, they would have found a large Seminole village that had about 400 warriors and their families, their cattle, supplies, about 200 black Seminole warriors living in that same area, and it could have been a decisive battle, but they did not press the battle because, again, I think logistical failures, they didn't have the ammunition, they didn't have the rations, didn't have the food to sustain themselves for any more time, so they had to go back to Fort Wayne to reprovision. And shortly after that, Carl was relieved and Major General Jessup was put in charge of the Army of Florida. So we look at this and we say the what ifs. What if they had just gone across? They might have been massacred because they were low on ammunition and they didn't really know what they were getting into. That's exactly correct. Lieutenant Colonel Brown took certain actions that led to David Moniak and two scouts going across, and then no other soldiers were engaged that uh, might have been picked off and maybe saved the lives of his unit because of these actions. Almost all the casualties of the battle on the American side were there at the stream crossing. Uh, most of the 25 wounded and 9 killed were killed right there. The other battle, there was a lot of shooting and charging and yelling, but not much blood drawn. But there was a good bit of blood drawn right there. And, you know, Tim what happened. I mean, Seminoles probably were withdrawing because the fire was dying down and they probably doing the usual thing. But on the other hand, if they had a major encampment there and their families were there and their cattle there and their supplies were there, they might have continued to resist, even have the Americans crossed in strength. If they're crossing in strength, they're not going in single file line. That's correct. The trail, they could not have put a run out. Uh, they'd had to, if not single file, certainly just a, a small front as opposed to a wide front where the firepower is. Now, several times you've talked about Captain Moniac, and then you've talked about Major Moniac. What was the difference? When they left Fort Drain on about the 10th of November, they crossed the river a couple of times, had a couple of pretty serious skirmishes. I think the one on the 18th was a more deadly battle than the one on the 21st, uh, which was in close to the same area, in the same general area as the Wahoo Swamp Battle. Captain Moniac was promoted to Major, uh, so by the time he was killed, he had been a Major for about four or five days. They retrieved his body, and then what became of his remains? All the bodies they retrieved, I don't think they retrieved the bodies until the next day. But they were taken back to the Dade Battlefield, which was the base camp for the operation, and they were given hasty burial at that point in time, along with the other soldiers from the Dade Battle who were still interred there. When this war was declared over, Colonel Worth ordered the remains of those who died at the Dade Battle and others to be exhumed and reinterred at St. Augustine Cemetery. David Moniak was buried at the Dade Battlefield. Were his remains taken up and then reburied in St. Augustine? Everybody thinks that that was happened. Uh, he was reinterred there. And then Florida set up a state cemetery near Bushnell, and a monument was erected there for David Moniak, but they don't think any remains of his were a place where that monument is. When was that monument put in? That monument was put in in 1996. Major General Wilhill Tigersley, who was West Point graduate from Montgomery, caused a memorial section tombstone number one to be erected memorializing Major David Moniak at Florida National Cemetery at Bushnell, which is, I understand, not far from Wiley Swamp. 
So General Tankersley had that monument erected in 1996. But even before that, General Tankersley had, had used his good office to convince the Army to name a reserve facility in Montgomery, Alabama, the David Moniak Army Reserve Center. We know the Army promised pay for the Creeks. I don't know if they ever paid the 750 Creeks, but they did eventually pay David Moniak's family for his services. When did the Army pay, and why did it take so long? It took a long time. Uh, I imagine things were chaotic in those days and didn't happen. I don't know why, why they didn't pay him, but he didn't get paid. And I think his family had to petition, Congress petitioned the Army to get him paid. They finally paid his family in 1848, 12 years after he was killed. He was paid for two months and 14 days service. He was paid the grand total of $247.26. And he was paid as a captain since Major Morris was paid as the major in the regiment. Just to add this little anecdote, my next father had this store and tavern on First Federal Road in Alabama who sided with the American in the Creek War of 1813-14, had his plantation and store burned and destroyed and cattle run off and he was wiped out by his fellow tribesmen, his brother-in-law being one of them. And he petitioned the government and was awarded some like $12,000 or $13,000 to reimburse him for the cost of the stuff that he'd lost during the First Creek War. And how is David Boniak remembered in history? I don't think he's remembered much at all. When you see a reference to David Manack, it always says he was the first Native American graduate of West Point. That's about all it says. It's almost always when they talk about the Second Seminole War and the Battle of Wild Swamp, they always mention that Major David Manack was killed. He was the first American Indian graduate from West Point. And there they leave it in a forgotten war, a forgotten battle, and a nearly forgotten West Point graduate. A forgotten hero. He didn't have to be there, you know. He didn't have to be there, and my guess is he volunteered to cross that creek that day, cross that stream. And so you're helping to bring some more recognition. Bring the memory of this officer back. He had an unusual life, a hard life, died a hero's death in my judgment. Anything else you'd like to add about David Boniak? If anybody who hears this podcast or knows any facts different from what I know, I'd like to hear from them. There are other letters from maybe West Point graduates who wrote about the battle, who served in the war and wrote about that battle and know more specifically about what happened at that stream crossing. I'd like to hear from them because I'd like to think I got it right, but I may not have it right. If anybody has information, you know, their family papers, people know what made them volunteer to go to Florida. I'd like to know about that also. That's still a mystery in my mind. He was a wealthy plantation owner, probably was not going to be relocated because he, he owned property outside the Indian lands. His family wasn't relocated after he was killed. I don't know why he volunteered to go. Richard Allen, thank you so much for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much for the call. I hope the podcast goes well. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.